and closing out ordinary time in the liturgical calendar on the book of Ecclesiastes entitled Life Worth Living. Now, a funny little uh, moment happened last afternoon. Um, Jordan and I received a text message from uh, Brittany Cones, uh, which was wonderful, after our intro, my intro talk, and uh, she said that Gavin, her, her middle school aged son, got in the car after the, the teaching, let out a deep sigh, and said, well, that sermon gave me existential dread. <laughs> Gavin's like 12 years old, and he said, existential dread. You need to catch up, everyone. You need to catch up. So after I read that text message, I laughed and thought to myself, after week one, a job well done. <laughs> and if you missed that first intro teaching, I would encourage you to go back and take a listen to it. Now, within this ancient piece of wisdom literature, there are two voices that we made reference to, the author of the book of Ecclesiastes and the teacher, the coalette the philosopher, the preacher. Uh, this is an individual who has great status, wisdom, and influence over an entire region. Many think that it could be possibly King Solomon. And he goes on a quest or search for meaning and lasting satisfaction. He goes on this journey looking for meaning and lasting satisfaction. And on this quest and journey, he discovers that everything is hevel, meaningless, futile, or vain, full of worthless idols, fleeting, elusive, ephemeral, a phrase that he uses often, a chasing after the wind. Everything is Hevel, hence the existential dread. However, we did conclude that the primary point of these uh, enigmatic and paradoxical musings over the course of 12 chapters isn't that life is meaningless or futile, but rather they reveal the absurdity of life absent of God. It reveals to us the insanity, the utter madness of what life would be like if you take God all the way out of the picture. An interesting fact in this book, over the course of these um, 12 chapters, you never see in the Hebrew the word Yahweh. Not once is Yahweh mentioned. A very interesting fact in terms of the book of Ecclesiastes. So it's not that life is meaningless or futile, but it is meaningless and futile and absurd, absent of God. What he refers to or calls life under the sun. Life under the sun. Thus producing an uneasiness, a, a weariness, a restlessness, and a malaise. A malaise. Or... Uh, existential suffocation, life under the sun. 
boxed within an imminent frame. Yet, somehow, we continue to, and the author and teacher reveals this, long for transcendence. We yearn for the more than. And this is the main reason why Ecclesiastes has been called the most contemporary book of the entire 66-book library known as the Scriptures. It foreshadows the predominant philosophy of our age in which we live, seeking eternal significance and connection within temporal time, within imminence and fleeting experiences as the means to try and seek such eternal satisfaction despite the temporal nature of time. Absent of the centrality of the transcendent. Modernity in the time in which we live is, in the language of the sociologist Peter Berger, a world without windows. A world without windows. Did you know a bedroom can't even be called a bedroom by code without windows? And our life in which we live under the sun, absent of God, would be a world without windows. Maybe there's natural light that we manufacture somehow, or it looks like natural light, but in fact, it's actually just a fluorescent bulb in the ceiling. A world without windows. Yet we long for what is outside. We long for what's beyond the cave. We tend to think that the shadows on the cave wall are reality, but in fact, they are just shadows of what is real. We long for the more than. Now, I mentioned last week to all of you that tens of thousands of people will drive the Blue Ridge Parkway during the fall to see the mosaic of colors. I heard multiple people this this week talking about driving up to the mountains to see the leaves change. We actually had someone come out to look at a part of our fence that had been damaged, and I was talking to the gentleman. He was great, and he was saying this afternoon him and some buddies were driving up to Boone to see the leaves change. Thousands of people make the trip down the Blue Ridge Parkway, even though these are the colors of time, temporality, change, hevel, and death. So, why do people take the time to drive hours to see this natural process of change and death? Quite simply, it's because it's beautiful. And beauty isn't something that can be empirically measured. This is what Berger, the sociologist, calls a signal of transcendence. Something within the empirical world, the natural world, that points to something beyond. Another example would be a toddler in the middle of the night crying and screaming in chaos. Has anyone been there before? A parent? Your little toddler screaming, and you're not sure why. And all of a sudden, you're hopping out of bed, right? You go up to go rescue the little boy or girl, and you maybe flip a light on in the darkness. Sit them on your lap. And what do you say to the chaotic child? Everything's going to be all right. Are you lying to the child? Because last I checked, it's a dog-eat-dog world out there. 
We do this because we have in, with, with, with inside of us innately this sense of there is an ordered world beyond what we can measure. There is something beyond that provides order for us to be able to say it's all going to be okay and believe it. When someone passes, a loved one passes, it's okay. Heaven gained an angel. Really? I thought there was nothing beyond the sun. Signals of transcendence. We see this with people taking the trip to go see these beautiful leaves change in the mountains of North Carolina and all up and down the East Coast. Now, a few months ago, Jordan and I uh, were getting a brand new toilet, praise God, in our half bath uh, downstairs to, um, to put there. And we had to take the old, old toilet that we had, uh, not to the dump, not to the landfill, but to the, and I quote, solid waste transfer station. <laughs> it quite possibly was the most disgusting experience of my life. And if beauty is purely about engaging the five senses, and that is it, then this one wins every single time over going to Boone. Every time. Because my sense of smell was way more engaged at the solid waste transfer station than to see leaves change. Every one of my senses were engaged. It was disgusting. I found myself gagging multiple times. And Jordan's like, what's the deal? I've been here multiple times. Get it together, bro. <laughs> I was like, emasculated by my wife. So why is it, though, that thousands of people don't line up at the solid waste transfer station to watch a natural process happen, to watch trash be collected and yet thousands go to the western part of the state to watch leaves literally die. What is the difference? Functionally, there is none. But it's a signal of transcendence. It's beauty. It's this sense that when we go and partake and we experience that it's pointing to the more than. It actually makes us feel small and the world feel much bigger. There's something beyond that which we can measure, know, and calculate it's a signal of transcendence. And we are hardwired to ask the question as human beings, what lies beyond the sun? What lies beyond time itself? Because without this sense of something beyond, the time, beyond life under the sun, then life would feel utterly meaningless and empty within. So life without the beyond makes the life within utterly meaningless and empty. So what does the teacher do? He goes on this search to examine and research the pursuit of meaning and fulfillment through various avenues under the sun, mainly power, profit, and performance or accomplishment or achievement primarily through attaining wisdom. And, as we will explore today, pleasure. Pleasure. 
Now, one utterly unique feature to the book of Ecclesiastes is that the teacher's starting reference point for his hypothesis is his own anecdotal observations and experience. And he works from this presupposition as a means of uh, discovering that there is no meaning in life under the sun. But it's fascinating because he doesn't start with Yahweh. He doesn't start with a theological statement. He starts with observations in his own life. This mode of thinking is called inductive reasoning. Inductive reasoning is a bottom-up approach to coming to some sort of conclusion. Looking at specific observations and then out of those observations making a general statement about life. And what I love about the teacher in this book is that he is seeking, he is curious, and he's asking questions of life. Most of us primarily are used to deductive reasoning, where we just take a bunch of statements of information and boil them down to these specific kinds of observations. But for us, we have to learn how to be a curious people. We have to learn how to be observant. We have to learn how to be aware. And we have to learn how to ask good questions. Now, most of us, if we question something, we often don't question enough. Matter of fact, I encourage you today, if you are doubting, continue to doubt. Because eventually you will doubt your doubts. If you question long enough, you will question your questions. Most of us just don't question enough. Most of us just don't doubt long enough in some regard. Because often we question based on feeling and reactivity. Not based on genuine pursuit or seeking. You know how I know this? We see a post on Facebook or on Instagram. or We watch a video on TikTok and it does something to our soul. So we go on a rabbit trail Googling things. Is that a genuine, honest pursuit? Or is that a reaction to an emotional and visceral response you had to something that you saw curated for your psyche by a large technological society? Most of us think that we're in this deep dive asking good questions. Actually, no, you've just been prompted by a podcast you listened to on Thursday morning. Or a song that poked and prodded at your psyche. And that's fine, but that's a reactive pursuit. What I love about the, the teacher is that what he does is that he says to himself consciously. He speaks to himself. Most of us don't ask enough questions. But I love this about the teacher. He's very honest. Ecclesiastes 2, verse 1 through 2. I said to myself, Come now, I will test you with pleasure to find out what is good. But that also proved to be what? Meaningless. Laughter, I said, is madness. And what does pleasure accomplish? How often do you have verbal conversations with yourself? Verbal, out loud. Anybody? You're not going to admit it because you're embarrassed. I do all of the time. Have you ever been caught talking to yourself by a stranger? I, I'm t I, literally, I will share facts with myself. 
That is so weird. I'll be driving down the road making observations to myself verbally. I don't know if that's you or not. Maybe I have a major sense of neuroses or psychosis. I don't know, but that is weird. You know, I actually read up that only about 50 to 60% of people have an inner monologue going on all the time. Some of you are like, there's nothing really happening in here. <laughs> you know, you're wondering, like, what's up with that teenage boy? Not much is going on up there, you know, to be honest, right? What's going on with her? There's not a lot of inner dialogue happening. Um, some of us, we're just constantly talking to ourselves right? There's an internal dialogue that's happening. <laughs> um, now, I know it's embarrassing, but at least we can connect and um, share a, a sense of commonality this morning. So I hope that you feel welcome today at Emmaus. Um, but what this teacher does is he has a conversation with his self. And what he is doing is making a conscious, proactive decision based on thought, reflection, and curiosity. All by himself. And when it says in the text, myself, it is referring to the center of his person. The Hebrew word can actually be translated multiple ways. Heart, mind, conscience, will. The command center of your person. That which directs your life. That which gives you energy to move towards something. And he begins having a conversation with his inner man. His whole person. So what he's going to do is he's going to test, not pleasure itself, but he's going to test his whole self with the full scope of what is translated as pleasure. Bodily pleasure, mental and emotional pleasure. He's going to test all of these aspects of pleasure. So what does he do? He goes to Ibiza. I watched a short documentary on Ibiza this past week. Wow, like... What a place, okay? Um, It's presented as paradise on earth. But there are so many, I was reading so many stories about the dark side of Ibiza. Like the the drug use is rampant. Like wild stuff. Um, So this is what he does. He's like, I'm going to Ibiza. And I'm going to live there for a while. And I'm going to try everything I can to experience every pleasure imaginable under the sun. Because I have access to everything. If it is, in fact, Solomon, he's the most influential, wealthy, and wise man in the known world at the time. He's not lacking access. So he goes on this journey. He has unhindered possibility and access to the resources for every possible pleasurable experience that life could possibly offer him. So throughout this chapter, he experiences around three categories of pleasure. And I'm going to keep the alliteration going uh, to build off of last week. The first category of pleasure is just simply play. Play. The word for laughter in the Hebrew comes from that notion of to play. To play. He's just going to watch every kind of comedian he can. He's going to every show. He's going to every activity, watching every show that's on Netflix. Like he's indulging himself in play. He's watching it all. He is also going to engage in wine while he's doing it. He's like, let's, let's get drunk and watch Netflix. Let's do it, you know? Let's go to this show at Madison Square Garden. I got front row tickets, and let's get drunk out of our mind and have a great time doing it. He engages in folly. He engages in parties. Every party that was happening in the time, he's there. He's present. He's doing it. 
The second form of pleasure he engages in in this chapter is one of production. Because he's like, yeah, laughter's not doing it. That's madness. What's the point? What's it accomplishing? Nothing. Wine, nothing. Folly, nothing. I've been to the parties, and I'm still empty. It's meaningless. So he says, let's produce something. Let's create. Let's build. He starts planting gardens. He becomes a developer because he can. But then eventually moves into this position to where he can have authority over people. People become his means of pleasure because of his position. He has wisdom. He has leadership. He has authority. He has it all. Every bit of it. Does anyone remember the the 1994 Disney Channel movie, Blank Check? Man, I was like so caught up in my childhood, like watching like little clips of Blank Check this week. Has anybody seriously, have you watched Blank Check before? Okay, none of you have met Jesus. You need to go watch Blank Check. I'm just, I'm, I'm kidding. Um, it's actually not that great of a movie. Yeah. <laughs> it's not good. But uh, when you're nine years old, I thought it was awesome. The kid literally has a blank check. He writes himself out a number. Like, I think it's a million dollars or something like that on a computer, which how he does this, I'm like, this is garbage. But anyway, I tried it myself a couple weeks ago. It didn't work. Um, and he goes and spends all this money. It's, it's wild. And eventually, like, he just screws it all up. The teacher, in, this, in some ways, does the same thing, but he can. He can. But then we get to Ecclesiastes chapter 2, verses 9 through 11. Where it says this, I became greater. I love this. He's like, I became greater by far than anyone in Jerusalem before me. What does that reveal? That he had the highest position of authority of anyone in the region. In all of this, my wisdom stayed with me. I thought that was interesting. He says this, listen to this. I denied myself nothing that my eyes desired. He engaged in play and pleasure. I refused my heart no pleasure. Verse 11, yet when I surveyed, that was a key phrase that stood out to me in the text. Yet when I surveyed, yet when I considered, yet when I discerned, which by the way, side note, discernment is a a, a gift that is utterly lacking in our time. The ability to step back, to sort things out and go, hmm, let me think about this for a moment. And despite all of his pursuits and all of the folly and the meaninglessness and the play and the pleasure, he still says, when I surveyed, when I considered all that my hands had done, production, and what I had toiled or the, the, the predicament that I found myself in, all the problems and the misery to achieve all of this, He comes back to his main point in thesis. Everything was meaningless. Hevel, a chasing after the wind. Nothing was gained under the sun. Now, here's a question for you. Is play, production, or position, or any of these pleasures bad in and of themselves? Not one bit. Some of them are very good. A couple of them are not. But a lot of them are good things. I love to watch shows with my wife. I love to go outside and have a good time. I love a good party. Some of y'all know that. I'm an extrovert, all right? I can dance. You might not think I can, but I can dance, okay? 
It's actually funny. I went to a wedding that Dylan Mendez was at with me, and he came up to me a while back. He probably has forgotten this. He said, bro, I didn't know you could dance. I was like, first of all, why were you surprised, okay? <laughs> but I love a good time, okay? These are good things. They're great. I love development. I love creativity. I love music. I love art. I love all of these things personally. They're not bad in and of themselves. They are very, very good things. However, here's what he is communicating. That when good things become ultimate things, they become worthless idols. When those good things that we all enjoy become ultimate things, they become worthless idols and only leave us wanting more. I mentioned last week, we are haunted by John D. Rockefeller's just a little more statement as it pertains specifically to the pursuit of money. Good things can become ultimate things overnight. When pleasure becomes pleasure-seeking, it only produces disenchantment, disappointment, and heartache. Pleasure is not bad. But pleasure-seeking produces heartache and disappointment. When created goods replace the creator, quite literally, life itself is sucked out. When technique replaces a telos, we are left with no meaning and significance. It's just another strategy to get us through the day, but towards what end? And when God is gone, all that is left is you. You know, the word myself occurs seven times in this passage of Scripture throughout chapter 2. Rivers, in some regard, are directed to him, and he's never full, just as it says in chapter 1. All of the rivers of life coming to the teacher, and he's never full, never satisfied. All that's left is himself, and yet he still, still feels a sense of meaninglessness. The British journalist uh, Malcolm Muggeridge, who had his own sort of uh, Solomonic, I guess you would say, journey that took him all over the world, and he tried all things, eventually became a believer in his 60s. Um, he had this to say. I thought this was very interesting. He said, if God is dead, somebody is going to have to take his place. It will be megalomania or erotomania, the drive for power or the drive for pleasure. Hitler or Hugh Hefner. Someone has to take his place. Who shall it be? Secular world. Is it us? That hasn't gone well for two millennia or more. Who shall it be? In an imminent world, the only real sense of meaning is either self-preservation or pleasure. What's referred to as hedonism. That's really all there is. Self-preservation, which produces power and eventually produces oppression. Or pleasure-seeking and hedonism. Which, how did that work for us in 2020? When pleasure is turned into work, you and I will burn out. And for life under the sun, pleasure turns into work. Soren Kierkegaard is famous for saying that for a lot of men and women, we pursue pleasure so much to the point that when we actually get it, we run right past it in haste. We will burn out. This, this past week, 
I saw a billboard on Westgate City Boulevard right before you get to Hilltop Road. It was a Michelob Ultra billboard. And the, the, the phrase was this, it's only worth it if you enjoy it. I thought to myself, what terrible advice that is. <laughs> it's only worth it if you enjoy it. What happens when you don't enjoy it? And how often do we not enjoy things? Does the worth just fade away? Do you enjoy seeing your sick grandma dying on a hospital bed? Is it worth it to go see her? Do you enjoy being with your kids to the point where, you know what, i got to cut back on work. I'm going to lose a little bit of money, but I want to be with my kids. Is it, is it worth it? What an interesting statement. I thought to myself, if our scorecard for life is solely driven by pleasure and happiness, we will actually never be satisfied. Always losing. Why is this? Because often life isn't so pleasurable. It isn't so enjoyable. It's hard. I don't know how many people I've even talked to today who are like, man, hard week. Was it worth it? And some of us just give up and are like, let's try this thing over here. Eh, same experience. Let's try this over here. Eh, let's change it, you know? Eternal joy can't come from quote-unquote it's. When the sign says it's only worth it if you enjoy it, joy comes from relationship. Satisfaction and pleasure can come from it's. But eternal joy, what we long for in the deepest part of our being, cannot come from things and cannot come from experiences. It is neurologically impossible. We have to have a scorecard that allows for suffering to be a part of our deepest formation and meaning. And a lot of us are burnt out because you've made pleasure your work. And it's never going to be enough. And we haven't been raised in a society with a framework for suffering and, to how, and, 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 and ways to handle healthy conflict. We run from it. We flee pain, pursue pleasure, which we'll get to in a second. That's, that's utterly self-defeating. Now, last week was Arcade Fire. This week is Kid Cudi, okay? Uh, in 2009, the rap artist uh, Kid Cudi released the Billboard charting single, The Pursuit of Happiness. Oh, some of you are singing already, right now? Some of you are like, who is Kid Cudi? You don't need to look him up. It's okay. Um, it, it's in this song that documents the, the rapper using drugs and alcohol as a means to achieve the, uh, no pun intended, highest level of happiness. Many considered it an anthem for a carefree, hedonistic pursuit and the rejection of all limits. However, upon closer examination, it's actually a dark tale of escapism associated with such a pursuit and the paradoxical unhappiness that follows. Interestingly enough, the song is parenthetically called Nightmare, with closing lyrics alluding to him questioning his activity just before blacking out. The pursuit of pleasure is inadvertently the pursuit of pain. Anna Lemke is a psychiatrist and the New York Times bestselling author of the book Dopamine Nation with the subtitle Finding Balance in the Age of Indulgence. Not Christian, totally secular book. 
And recently I watched a short BBC documentary that used her work as the basis for the documentary. Come to find out, the part of the brain that processes pleasure is the same that processes pain. And they both are co-located in such a way that they function like a teeter-totter, always seeking balance or homeostasis. The more pleasure that we experience, the more dopamine that is released and required to maintain that level of satisfaction and pleasure. The stronger the indulgence, the more our brain adapts by down-regulating the pain side of the balance, tilting more toward pain at first. This accounts for hangovers and letdowns. The higher the pleasure, the heavier the pain is going to be. The more dopamine, the heavier it's going to be on the pain side to bring your brain back to homeostasis and balance. What was originally a pleasurable experience for some of us when continuously fed turns into the inability to function without it, thus producing addictions or simply overindulgence. More, 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 more. Let down. More, 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 more hungover. It's not just for drugs and alcohol. It's the scroll. It's shopping. It's Amazon. That one click gets me on Amazon. Just buy it now. Boop. Coming in a couple of days. Right? Eating. We overindulge ourselves. Oh, it was a bad week today. It was a bad day, bad week, whatever. I'm just going to eat a bunch of ice cream tonight. Like, I, I've been there, man. This past week, I told Jordan, I was like, listen, girl, I'm going to get myself a big old burger from Wendy's. A couple thousand calories. And I was on the phone with Sam Cruz, and he was eating something super healthy, and I felt immense shame. I even got one of Wendy's lemonades, which I promise you has at least 100 grams of sugar. And he's talking about eating healthy and treating your body right, you know, being, your body's a temple of the Holy Spirit. And I was, you know, reading about all this crap that we eat, and I'm sitting there just, just mowing on fries. So it's, it's me too, man. But does the pain go away from the indulgence? No, the, heart, the, the fall is even harder. Some of us eat like crap and then we feel like crap. Tasted good, but we felt terrible. This is the way our brain works. The documentary said if we don't stop indulging, eventually we don't act for pleasure, but we act just to feel normal. And we all are this way, especially in an age of overabundance. Now, the primitive wiring that we have in our brain works great in a hunter-gatherer society, where if you don't get food or water, you will die. But is a destructive neurological mechanism in a world of overabundance. A world where we have the most engineered stimulating factors that have ever existed in human history. I know. <laughs> Seriously, great timing, Lord. That's awesome. <laughs> Much of which our indulgence is rooted in self-medication and unhealthy coping mechanisms. Numbing pain, fleeing pain. We do these things not to alleviate pain, but alleviating having to face the pain. So we distract ourselves to death. Yet we struggle to actually live. Remember, I asked the question last week to close. Are you really living? 
Are you really living? M. Scott Peck in The Road Less Travel says this regarding mental health, which is one of the best definitions of mental health I've ever seen before. It's so good. He says, mental health is an ongoing process of dedication to reality at all costs. But what if reality is hard? And it is. He would argue, as one who wrote a a best-selling book in the 1970s as a psychiatrist, that we have to be dedicated to reality at all costs. What if our greatest threat, friends and family, isn't the pursuit of pleasure, but setting up constant distractions of the existential pressure of a life lived purely under the sun? Because we are told what is real is only what can be measured and seen. Even when we refer to the universe, if you look up what the word universe actually means, it means that which we have knowledge of beyond ourselves. It's still centered on the human experience. Cosmos was the ancient world, a word in the ancient world that had to do with an ordered world that had a sort of rhythm and harmony to it beyond us, that which we we did not have awareness of. But universe is uniquely tied to that which we have our grasp on. And if this is all there is, we might as well distract ourselves from the fact that it isn't enough. We might as well self-indulge. Because of pursuing pleasure and seeking pleasure, often as a form of distraction from reality. I have for us one embrace that I want us to consider, something that we are generally told to run from at all cost. And that is to embrace boredom. Some of you are checked out and already saying, I don't like this teaching, this is not good. That's okay. I was reading a New Yorker piece uh, this past week, and a psychologist defining boredom. He says it's a sensation that something is missing, though we can't quite say what. Leo Tolstoy defined it as a desire for desires. Yet, countless studies and research has shown that boredom is actually quite beneficial. Feel free to do the research on your own. One psychologist says to practice doing nothing. Not praying, not meditating, not doing a thing. Sit or maybe even at most go walk in nature. Do nothing. Boredom actually improves mental health, creativity, and guess what? Self-esteem. Which we all want some of that, do we not? The BBC documentary that I watched with Anna Lemke testified to this, and uh, the documentary advocated for what they call dopamine fasting, removing all stimulants for periods of time and being alone in silence and solitude with no agenda. I just call this the spiritual disciplines. (laughs) We think we're so clever. You ever get around people and it's almost as though we seem like we're finally here, world. We're the ones that are going to do it. We're the ones you've been waiting for. Really? Okay. How arrogant of us. This has been around for thousands of years as a way to navigate society and life. Boredom also provides opportunity for stepping back and discerning. It provides the opportunity to be reflective, 
to go inward a bit, to see what is there, consider how life really is and how you are really living. But most of us don't want to go there because we don't want to see what's there. We will come face to face with reality. And at some point, reality will always win. Always. I was reading um, about the quality of life experienced by soldiers coming home from World War II versus those that came home from the Vietnam War. Interesting theory was developed that the soldiers who came home from World War II had a much higher quality of life at a, at a data level than those that came home from Vietnam. And the theory was that those who came home from World War II had weeks to reflect on their experience on a boat. Whereas soldiers flew home from Vietnam one day shooting a gun to two days later watching a child be born. No time for reflection. No time for boredom. To embrace boredom is to also, in some way, some mysterious way, to embrace contentment and delayed gratification in a world of instant gratification. I want it now. You guys remember Charlie and Chocolate Factory? The whole song, I want it now. I want the whole world. You know what I'm talking about? I want the world. I want the whole world. That's how it goes, right? Um, that's our mode of living. I want the world. I want the whole world. I want it now. Instant gratification. But delayed gratification is all about a strategic plan, a conscious choice, a schedule that we actually set out to operate in. In other words, delayed gratification has to do with uh, a plan for short-term pain in the beginning and long-term satisfaction rather than short-term pleasures and long-term pain. Because remember, the pleasure-pain balance the brain is always going to move towards some sort of homeostasis. We have to, as a people, learn how to become content. This past week, I was sitting here. I was working in the community room. I thought to myself, I'm hungry. I didn't bring food. But I am lazy and don't want to go home. This happens often. So guess what? Praise God for delivery. Hello. Right? So I'm like, Jimmy John sounds good. You guys are learning that, man, Spencer eats like crap, you know? Jimmy John's is better than Wendy's. But anyway, maybe it's not. Who knows? I'll ask Sam later. Um, so I'm like trying to order something. Order. I click like submit the order and it pops up. Unknown error occurred. I'm like, come on, man. Let's try it again. Right? Refresh, order, submit. Unknown error occurred. I'm like, the Lord, what are you doing? My first thought is that my I, I'm, I'm, I'm getting this message because somehow my wife is in like, the metaverse and is hacking and saying, don't spend any money, right? <laughs> but maybe it's the Lord saying, you know what? You need to be content with what you have. Go home and eat yourself a PB&J, right? We have to learn contentment. I don't need that. Do you really need that? I, we use needs and wants interchangeably. You don't need the lamp. You don't need the rug. You don't need that car. You don't need that house. You don't need that thing. You're doing okay, and I'm the world's worst, man. I love clothes. I love shopping. I love fashion. I love all of the things. But the Lord looked at me and said, you don't need it, man. I'm just testifying. And here, with clothes, most of the stuff that we're buying is enslaving children across the world. It's fascinating. Go to a fast fashion store, and there will be some sort of justice slogan on a shirt, and you're employing kids in another country who are enslaved. The irony. 
We have to learn contentment. I think boredom provides us the way for contentment and for gratification. The scriptures refer to this and give us this command to be still. The phrase is to be still, to cease or to rest. Psalm 37, 7 says, be still, be still before the Lord or in front of the Lord and wait patiently for him. Do you see that? Wait patiently for the Lord. He's going to come, but he's going to come in his own time. You need to wait. And you're like, but I thought the Lord had prime. Like, what is going on? Why? Lord, are you not on Grubhub? Like, I wanted ASAP delivery. What is going on? He says, wait patiently for him. The Hebrew word that is translated wait patiently can also be translated as, guess what? Pain, anguish, or to physically shake or tremble. What? He's like, you need to sit there in the anguish and the pain for just a little longer. You need to shake to some degree. Because guess what? When we sit in boredom, what happens? Yes, exactly. I'm a foot, I'm a foot tapper. Anybody a foot tapper? Oh, you're just going. And you don't know why. You're just going. Right? Okay, got to get up out of here. You know? We're rocking. Okay, time to go. You know? He's like, sit there. Wait. We get in time with the Lord in prayer. We're sitting there like, I'm doing my thing. I'm doing the rhythm. I just did Lectio for seven minutes, and I'm five minutes in, and I'm so bored. <laughs> Lord, hurry up. I want Shekinah glory now. He's like, you need to keep waiting. You need to keep waiting. Go through the pain. Go through the anguish. Let your body shake a little bit. It's okay. It's okay. You're building a capacity to endure. This is the same psalm that just a few verses prior declares, take delight in the Lord and he will give you the desires of your heart. Ooh, we love that one. Put it on a coffee mug, on a journal. Get it tattooed. Beautiful. But we are not going to get Psalm 37.7. Be still before the Lord and wait patiently for him. It's in the same context. It's the same prayer. Take delight in the Lord and he will give you the desires of your heart. In other words, be still. Wait. Be bored for just a bit. Only then can you reflect on the deepest desires of your heart the satisfaction that you truly long for, the depths of your being. But most of us don't wait long enough. I've talked to many people who want to feel God. I'm like, are you in, in time with the Lord? Yeah, a couple minutes a day. Are you waiting long enough? Because here's what we tend to do. Once the anguish comes, we flee. Once the boredom hits, we're out. But here's what's beautiful. God is always on the other side of boredom. God's there. You wait patiently for him. He will be there. And do you know why? The word boredom comes from this word bore, which means a hole. A hole. To embrace boredom is to embrace that there is, in fact, an insatiable hole within you for God that no amount of temporal pleasure can satisfy, that an eternal anguish inside of you exists, and you and I get bored because we try to fill it with things that continue to not be able to satisfy. God is always on the other side of 
boredom. And the teacher reminds us, I'm going to get Anderson to come up. We're going to close. That with access to all the pleasures, amusements, and sensualities that the world could offer us, all of them, every sort of pleasure, after experiencing them all, he says that it's meaningless or heavenly. And in some ways, I think what he is saying at the end of chapter 2, verse 25, I'm still bored. There's still a hole. I still have a, 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 an emptiness inside of me that exists. Verse 25, he ends with this question, for who can eat or enjoy anything apart from him? That question frames the whole book. Blaise Pascal was famous for saying, there is a God-shaped vacuum in the heart of each man which cannot be satisfied by any created thing, but only by God the Creator. Keep pursuing the pleasure. You're not going to be satisfied. I don't need to give you a theological statement to grapple with today. You need to look at your own life and experience and recognize that all of these things are actually producing deep and meaningful satisfaction. There is a cost to every pleasure. So as I mentioned last week, is what you want worth wanting? Does the reward outweigh the risk? And does it produce a life worth living? Does it produce a life that's worth living? question we have to ask ourselves isn't so much what is our strongest desire, which is the way of hedonism, urges, cravings, the text calls them lust or the flesh. It's not so much about our strongest desire, but what is our deepest desire? And inductively, it seems to me it is only what is beyond the sun that ultimately satisfies. Pleasure-seeking cannot produce ultimate peace. And I think for all of us, we can grapple with this reality. I just testified to a few moments in my life the last week where I thought this thing could produce something inside of me that it didn't. It actually made it worse. And there are other countless testimonies in this space of the same kind of pursuit. I also want to say to you, if you're doubting or have questions, keep doubting. Ask the questions, but ask good ones. Be balanced. Is the grass greener on the other side? Let's ask. How is life without God? Oh, because guess what? We all have faith. We don't lose it. We exercise it every day. We put our trust in something or someone to get us through. Will it get you through the reality and pain of life? Ask the questions. God wants to satisfy you, but he also wants you to wait. He wants you to wait, to sit, to be still. Ecclesiastes is not a pessimistic book, I promise. But it is a glimpse of reality. It's a mirror for us to look into. And I hope that today you were able to look into that mirror.